And now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Happy Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman. UC Cooperative Extension Lifetime Master Gardener, Garden Columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel. The guy that does all the typing at FarmerFred.com. All the ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page at Twitter.com slash FarmerFredDailyGardenTips. Lots of snark retweets too. Uh, that would be uh, twitter.com slash Farmer Fred. And, of course, the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page where there is always a garden dialogue going on. Lots of interest there at what's happening at Roseville High School. They have a corpse flower that is going to be blooming soon. Now, last time we checked, it hadn't quite opened up yet. So we're keeping our eyes on that, and you can keep your eyes on that, too. If you go to the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, you'll find a link to YouTube where they actually have a camera on the flower, and you can watch it open. (laughs) It's a six-foot flower. It's taking its time, and we're all waiting for it to stink up the greenhouse there. Corpse flower, of course. The Titan Arum is known for its stinky nature, and it always attracts hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. And it, it's not a common plant. It's very uncommon. They did have one before at Roseville High School back in 2011, and they grew this current one from a seedling, and it's taken a long time. It's basically taken a decade to grow. So that that's kind of interesting, and uh, we'll be uh, getting an update on that a little bit later on in this program. Also on this program, we're going to be talking about native plants in California, and this may surprise you, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife is actively involved in preserving native plants. And we'll talk about what they're doing to help out that cause. Also, we talked to a soil scientist about three tips to have a more successful garden or farm. Now, it's kind of farm-related, but it certainly can uh, relate to what you're doing in your backyard as far as improving the health of your soil. So we're going to be talking about that. Also, we'll uh, take a walk through the UC Davis Arboretum with Warren Roberts, their superintendent emeritus, and find out what's blooming there in late August. And a visit to a rhododendron reserve that's uh, up on the north coast, up near Jenner, that is a sort of a hidden gem of a rhododendron garden in uh, Salt Creek State Park. And we'll find out about that. Of course, we'll have a garden grappler. That'll be coming up in a few minutes. And uh, we'll tackle your garden questions as well. 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Email, sure, send it to Fred at FarmerFred.com. This is the time of the year when uh, we do our changeover from summer vegetables and summer flowers to cool season flower planting and cool season vegetable planting. And we talked a lot on this program about cool season vegetables, but we don't spend enough time talking about cool season flowers. And all the flowers that we'll be putting on a show later in the fall through the winter, into early spring, that do best if you plant them during the month of September or October. And among the plants, the flowers 
that you can plant from seed in September in preparation for a show coming up in the winter, maybe late fall and the early spring, are seeds of like California poppy, cornflower. There are some plants, too, that uh, will have a show later on in the summer. They just have a long growing season. Plants like foxglove or hollyhock, larkspur. Other poppies as well can be planted from seed. Sweet peas do quite well when planted now. Those are just a few. Now, there's a lot of other cool season annuals that you can be putting in your yard this time of year, especially September, that do quite well throughout the winter and into early spring. And among those transplants you can find at your nursery now include violas, right? Johnny jump-ups. What else? Snapdragons, stock. Some of the early blooming salvias are a good choice. Calendulas, another good choice. So there's a lot of flowers that you can be purchasing now as transplants to put in your garden to keep that show going through the cool season, through fall, through winter, and through early spring. And those are just a few examples. There's a great uh, list online uh, called the Sacramento Flower Seed Planting Schedule put together by the Sacramento County Master Gardeners. And if you just uh, Google the phrase Sacramento Flower Seed Planting Schedule, I'm sure this would pop up. All right, so get set for that. All right, yeah, it never ends here. Now, I know a lot of you are maybe a little disappointed in your uh, summer garden, especially your vegetable garden, because of uh, the heat that we've been having. Tomatoes were smaller, a lot of sunburn on tomatoes and peppers. And uh, we're going to have to start adapting some of the strategies if this trend continues in future years with what they do in the desert when they raise their vegetables. And a lot of it has to do with maybe giving them some afternoon shade. You can do the same with shade cloth, maybe planting them on the east side of the house, or perhaps in the vicinity of taller shrubs and trees that will provide some afternoon shade for these summer vegetables. One of the uh, poor results of uh, the summer heat has been the size of tomatoes. A lot of people are uh, complaining about the size. They're much smaller. I've noticed that in my own uh, relatively small for me uh, tomato bed this year. And I noticed uh, Master Gardener Dan Vieira posted a picture recently on uh, Facebook of a Cherokee purple tomato. A Cherokee purple usually is an heirloom tomato that usually gets to good size. It, it could fill your hand. He had it next to a dime. <laughs> That's how small it was. And you can blame the heat on that. All right. Got a garden question? Give us a call. Let's go to the phones. To Danville we go. And Ray, Ray, welcome to Get Growing. Hey, Farmer Fred. I've been listening for years and love your show, so thank you. You're welcome. Hey, um, first of all, you just mentioned tomatoes. My big beasts are still doing what they always do, produce, 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 and big size. So, gosh, that's a shout-out. I mean, it's no... That's not a new one. It's not an heirloom. But, boy, what an amazing tomato. And let's, um, as I'm fond of saying, all gardening is local. And you're in Danville where you get more of a moderating temperatures and more marine influence. And we're, here we're getting pummeled by the heat every day. You have more moderate temperatures. And, um, and I, yeah. you're doing well. It's interesting. You mentioned marine. We are getting this summer more marine layer than I've ever seen. It's just it's flowing over the hillside. So interesting. Hey, question for you. I keep hearing people talk about um, 
don't till the garden, don't till it. How do you possibly do that with our bulletproof Contra Costa Adobe? <laughs> the easiest way to do that is with two things, cover cropping and mulching. In fact, I'm going to be talking to a soil scientist here on the program at 1030, and we talk about the benefits of no-till and how to get around that problem. And uh, we did an interview earlier over on the KFPK Garden Show with Sarah Griffin Bubakar of Peaceful Valley Farm Supply, who has a uh, a class on cover cropping next Saturday up there in Grass Valley at uh, Peaceful Valley. And uh, as she points out, by choosing the right cover crops you're and planting them in the fall and letting them grow through the winter, it improves the soil. And a lot of them, like daikon radish, actually have big roots that can help break up clay soils and hard soils and uh, will allow for better percolation of water in the future. Plus, with a cover crop, too, if you cut it down be at about 10% flowering and then cover it up with a layer of mulch or compost, that keeps the nitrogen in the ground instead of releasing it to the air, which adds more nitrogen to the soil. And that's a good thing because if, if it's one thing that soils throughout our area are lacking is nitrogen because nitrogen gets used up first and foremost. Got it. Hey, uh, real quick follow-up. Um, cover crop, what would be a good cover crop? I've got some chickens to 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 plant cover crop and then allow the chickens to wander through it in the winter. What would be a suggestion for that, something they would enjoy? Well, they would enjoy, if they like uh, going through a jungle, uh, vetch, purple vetch, uh, fava beans, clover. Uh, there are some peas that do quite well. And one of the best sites to find out more information about uh, different cover crops for different locations around California is groworganic.com, which is the Peaceful Valley Farm Supply uh, website. And they have a whole section on cover crops with different blends and the purpose of each uh, of the ingredients in those blends. Great. Thank you for your show. All right, Ray. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We'll take a short break. When we come back, you know what we're going to do? We're going to talk about how the California Department of Fish and Wildlife helps protect the native plants. And there are some that are on the verge of extinction. We'll talk about that when we come back to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. California hosts approximately 6,500 species, subspecies, and varieties of plants that occur naturally in our state. And many of these are found nowhere else in the world. Some are adapted to really unique habitats or very harsh conditions. And some occur in such low numbers or have been so impacted by human influence that they're at risk of permanent extinction from the wild. This is where the California Department of Fish and Wildlife steps in. It's not just uh, fish and mammals that they're concerned about. They're also concerned about the conservation of native plants. And we're talking to Jeb McKay-Bjerke. He's the Senior Environmental Specialist for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And Jeb, talk about the threat of, uh, I guess, our own humanity to native plants here in California. Well, you know, California is really unique in that uh, we have so many types of plants that occur here and nowhere else naturally in the world. Uh, and of the plants in California, over a quarter of them are considered to be rare or endangered. And some of these face threats from all sorts of different things. But I think one of the biggest threats is elimination and disturbance of habitat. 
from activities such as agriculture and development. Um, really, there have been a lot of significant changes to natural vegetation that's happened since the gold rush here in California, and impacts are still happening. Um, many of the impacts are from livestock and invasive plant species that have been brought in. Um, for example, with few exceptions, the plants in the Central Valley of California are vastly different now than they were 200 years ago. Um, historic accounts by John Muir describe a grand level ocean of flowers that formed one flower bed nearly 400 miles in length by 30 in width, with flowers piled upon flowers, heaped and gathered into deep glowing masses. And he said that he would step on 100 flowers with each step, which is incredible. And now, in the Central Valley and the surrounding hills and many other parts of California, it's all dominated by exotic annual grasses that were brought in from the Mediterranean. I mean, it's just a really stark contrast from the way it was before to what it is now. Talk a little bit about uh, the plants that maybe those explorers saw several hundred years ago as they crossed the Sierra and were uh, coming down into the valley. What was the plant material they would be seeing? Well, you know, a lot of it we don't know. I think we can kind of guess about what they were seeing, such as plants that we know that are still around today, such as gold fields and lupins and poppies. Uh, things we're really used to seeing, but I think it was just the abundance of them across the landscape that was really striking. Um, but really, because we weren't there and we weren't doing very much scientific botanical collections back in those days, it is a bit of a mystery the way it was before. Was there a lot of oak woodland in the area, in the valley? There was. You know, there was uh, trees such as valley oaks, um, which you can still see around quite a bit, but they used to form big forests of valley oaks in the valleys here. And really that kind of vegetation type has been severely impacted um, with a lot of those trees being cut down and not regenerating naturally. What are the plants now that are most threatened in California? Well, there's a lot of them. And there's two plants right now that are actually on the candidate list for being listed under the California Endangered Species Act. Uh, one of those plants is called Lassix lupin, and it occurs in a really remote part of Northern California called the Lassics, uh, which are mountains with serpentine soils on them. And these plants just grow at the top of these mountains. And in a warming climate, which we have, there's really nowhere for them to go. They can't go any higher to escape higher temperatures. And they depend on snowmelt, which uh, it's snowing less and less. Just recently in 2014 and 2015, there was almost no snow on these mountains, which was really unprecedented. So uh, that really is a big impact to these plants. Another um, candidate for listing in California right now is a plant called Coast Yellow Leptosiphon, and it only grows on one sea bluff in the whole world in an area that is less than half the size of a basketball court, which is a really, really small area. On one side that goes right up to a cliff into the ocean, it has invasive ice plant creeping up over on one side of the population. And on the other side of the population, somebody wants to build houses. It's really hard to try to conserve a plant like that that's in such a dire situation and its range is so small. Who are the biggest thugs in this? What are the imported plants that spread the easiest and have taken over most of that wild area? Well, ice plant um, along the coasts is just everywhere. I mean, and it covers um, 
native dune habitats, native habitats all up and down the coast. It is a really nasty plant, um, and unfortunately it has a really attractive-looking flower, so it's hard to demonize it, but um, it's really bad. And we found that in a lot of instances, if you just can pull up enough of it, um, it's relatively easy to pull, that some natural vegetation will start regenerating on its own. Uh, The native plants and the native seeds underneath um, have had some success with regenerating if you just remove it from areas that you're managing intensely. Other plants that are uh, big issues in California include uh, yellow star thistle, which is a, a really nasty plant, especially on rangelands. Cows don't like it, and if you've ever walked, tried to walk through a patch of yellow star thistle, um, you'll know it because it'll poke you right through your uh, through your jeans. I imagine you go to cocktail parties and, and people say, well, so what? If, if we're losing these native plants, uh, what value is it? Let's let's do some development here. But uh, what are the values of preserving uh, even small quantities of native plants? Well, I, I think that there is an argument to be made that says that there's inherent value in all life and that it should be conserved just because it exists. That may not be very convincing to some people, but native plants also are essential components of ecosystems, uh, natural processes in the world, and they provide us with a lot of renewable materials, and some of them may have utility to us that we have never even looked at and we don't know. They may provide medicines that we don't know about or haven't researched. So I think that it's foolish to allow something to go extinct in our lifetimes when we can prevent it. I think it's valuable to keep plants around if we can. How many plants are on the endangered species list here in California? Well, there are 154 plants that are state designated as threatened or endangered. You know, there are many more that may meet that definition, but they haven't gone through the legal process of being officially designated as threatened or endangered. Really, maybe 1,700 to over 2,000 plants could be considered rare or endangered in California. Um, There is a a whole bunch of really rare stuff here. I imagine there's something all of us can do when it comes to preserving native plants, and I I would think part of it is uh, leave only footprints and take only memories. I think you're right on. Um, I think the number one thing that people can do is try to do no harm. If you're fortunate enough to have native plants uh, and natural habitats on your property, keep them around. They're cool. And I think that you know, if you don't have native plants on your property, uh, maybe consider using them in your landscape. Uh, a lot of places in the world have been planted with plants, um, the same old plants that you'll find at your local home improvement store. Um, but those plants tend to not be very well suited for California in a lot of instances. Uh, the native plants that are here in California took tens of thousands of years to evolve, to become, to become good at surviving here in California. And they contribute to the ecosystems in all sorts of different ways. Furthermore, native plants are really easy to care for. They uh, require very little supplemental water, which saves you money on your water bill. They don't require fertilizers. They don't require pesticides. You don't have to mow them. Less pruning and just generally much less of your time. Native plants are, are great to plant. And if people want more information about California native plants, of course, the California Native Plant Society has a good website with lots of lists available for native plants in your own area. And I imagine there's information at the California Department of Fish and Wildlife website. There is. You know, we mostly have web information on our website about the threatened and endangered plants in California, not so much about gardening, but a lot of really interesting 
interesting information about the interesting and rare plants that California has. It's a really great place um, with lots of cool, interesting habitats that can be explored. Many of those are ecological reserves that are managed by our department for the unique uh, plant resources that are there. Yeah, it's a really special place here in California. The website is wildlife.ca.gov, and we've been talking with Jeb McCabe-Yerke. He's the Senior Environmental Specialist of the Native Plant Program at the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And Jeb, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thanks so much, Fred. It's where the conversation begins. This is Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. What if there was a relatively simple, cost-effective way to help feed the world, reduce pollution, pull carbon from the atmosphere, protect biodiversity, and make farmers money? Well, David Montgomery discovered the answer, and frankly, it's right below our feet. He's written a book called Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. It's a journey to uncover the blueprint for a regenerative agriculture that builds soil health and leaves both farmers and the environment better off. Besides writing this book, uh, David Montgomery has written several books. He's a MacArthur Fellow, a professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington, the author of The Hidden Half of Nature, and uh, one of my favorite books, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. And uh, David, I, I think uh, this book, your new book, Growing a Revolution, kind of picks up where dirt left off because you ended that book with, as odd as it may sound, civilization survival depends on treating soil as an investment, as a valuable inheritance rather than a commodity as something other than dirt. And that's kind of like what conservation agriculture is all about. Yes, it really it really does pick up nicely on that. And it, it catalogs and reflects my journey of as a geologist learning about farming practices and the, the role and importance of soil and supporting civilizations and how societies that didn't take care of their soil didn't last for the long over the long haul. And the new book, uh, Growing a Revolution, really uh, it grew from talking with farmers and visiting farmers around the world who are practicing regenerative agriculture and restoring fertility to their soil. And one of the things that gave me great cause for optimism uh, was how widely the, general, the simple general principles behind this can apply, how they can scale up and work on small farms and large farms, and how by reducing the input costs for farmers, the amount that they were spending on diesel and fertilizer and, and pesticides, while maintaining their yields, it really resulted in better uh, on-farm economics. These farms were more profitable. And if there's one thing that everybody that lives in the city like myself needs is we need to stay, have farmers stay in business so they can feed us. Exactly. And uh, I know people on this show are tired of me singing the praises of mulch. So I'll let you sing the praises of mulch because that's really a big part of regenerative agriculture. <laughs> Oh, it really is. I mean, there's there's sort of three general principles behind uh, the, the concepts of conservation agriculture, which were what many of these farmers I visited had adopted. And it, it boils down to minimizing disturbance of the soil surface, keeping the ground surface covered, uh, like with a mulch um, at all times or with living plants, and also growing a diversity of crops. Of those three, keeping the, the soil undisturbed and having a mulch on the surface is actually really, really, a really, really simple and powerful technique. Now, it may be a different practice than many farmers are 
used to and that certainly haven't been used in all areas throughout history. But the, this combination of factors is really a um, combination of the ancient wisdom of, of cover crops and crop rotations along with modern knowledge of how to actually operationalize um, weed control without the plow. And, and mulch is a big part of all that. So the, 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 the way that uh, Anne Beclay, my co-author on The Hidden Half of Nature, and I summarized the key message of that book was mulch your soil inside and out because there's direct parallels between what happens in a farm field and what happens in the human gut. And that book ended up focusing a lot on that. The new one, Growing a Revolution, is really more about how these ideas play out on modern modern farms in both the developed and developing world. On our show, we've talked a lot about uh, the benefits of mulch in the drought and how by having a cover crop, a living mulch, if you will, really makes the soil more water retentive and also the roots of the cover crop allow the water to uh, percolate even deeper down. So we've seen the benefits of a living cover crop uh, as a mulch during a drought, but this is a uh, applicable to all farms in all places, isn't it? Yeah, it was actually very, it turned out to be very generalizable. Um, and as a geologist, I really like really generalizable things, these sort of big patterns. And that was one of the, the take-home messages that I had from visiting farmers around the world who'd adopted these practices, is the sort of the, the, the hidden power of mulch, if you will. Um, people had different techniques and different methods of getting at it. They would combine it with different aspects of, of, uh, of their cropping system or their livestock management system in different places. But the idea of keeping the soil surface covered not only helps it hold moisture and helps that, that um, the water that, that falls as rain to actually sink into the ground where you want it as a farmer instead of running off over the surface, carrying away your nutrients in your topsoil where you don't want it as a farmer, um, the mulch has a lot of a lot going for it in as a element of this system of, of regenerative agriculture. And as you point out in your book, Growing a Revolution, this isn't anything new. I remember in your previous book, Dirt, you had a, a graphic of a book published in 1708 called The Whole Art of Husbandry, or the Way of Managing and Improving of Land. And it's a lot of it's the same principles you talk about in your new book. Yes, no, indeed. It's sort of the, the marriage of these sort of ancient practices and ancient wisdom or, or traditional practices and then modern technology. And it's bringing those two together with the new twist, really, of doing it with minimal disturbance of the soil. So getting those ancient practices aligned with no-till practices. And that's been really something that has developed in terms of learning how to do that and options for doing it over the last uh, 50 years or so as the no-till farming movement has really gone from a, a tiny minority of farmers in the Western world to, I think in the U.S. today, it's on cropland, it's something around about a third of farmers. But adopting those other two pieces, the cover crops, the diversity of rotation, along with the no-till, is something that really completes the three-legged stool of conservation agriculture and can lead to really surprisingly rapid improvements in soil fertility and in soil carbon content, which really goes towards feeding the microbes in the soil, the mycorrhizal fungi and the bacteria that, it turns out, really help with plant nutrition, help with plant defense, uh, really bolster plant health, which in turn allows using less fertilizer and less herbicide and less pesticide, which saves farmers money and, and allows them to be able to maintain their harvests. Uh, and that's a really a winning combination. 
I was surprised to learn in, in my conversations with a lot of uh, natural resources conservation service people how widespread no-till and cover cropping is in the Midwest. Yet here in California, it's very slow to being adapted, but uh, that's going to have to change. Yeah, and you know, and I first I first became aware of uh, this sort of growing movement of farmers who are adopting these practices as a, as a new system of agriculture through visiting farmers in the Midwest. I went out to, to Kansas years ago when my uh, dirt book came out, and frankly, I was a little worried about going to a, an agricultural community and talking about how soil erosion had impacted societies throughout history. But I was thoroughly uh, uh, engaged and interested in talking to farmers about their experience in trying to restore fertility to their soil. And there's a lot of experience now in the American Midwest on trying to adapt this system of farming to circumstances in different parts of that region. And I would really like to see these ideas uh, spread globally. And I, don't, I take no credit for these ideas. I'm, I've, I've visited people who are already doing them after all, but they really do offer a foundation for a, a, a revolutionary new way to look at farming and a that has transformative potential to really greatly reduce the, um, the environmental footprint of farming but at the same time, revitalize um, the economics, the profitability of, of farms, both large and small, in both the developed and developing worlds. And that uh, leads us right to the next question, which is what any typical farmer would ask is, well, what's in it for me? How much is this going to cost me? When can I make a profit doing this? In, on the, on the far, each farm I visited was a little different, and most of the farmers that I re was visiting uh, really started to adopt this suite of practices sort of one step at a time. They went no-till, then they added the cover crops, and then they started to diversify the rotation. And the original motivation was almost always a period of economic hardship that left them in the position where they just didn't have the capital to use as many of the inputs as they had been using. So there was a an economic impetus that led to sort of a change in thinking and practices. But as they saw their soil improve in quality, they realized that they could actually use less inputs to generate the same harvest, if not increased harvests. And and that tra that translated into greater farm profitability. And when those things all lined up, where people realized they could be better stewards of their land and leave it to their children and grandchildren in better shape than they got it from their grandparents, but make a profit at the same time, that really started to help these ideas spread. And the story in each region and each farm was, was obviously different. The, the specific practices for how you'd implement that idea of minimizing disturbance, covering up the soil with cover crops and growing a diversity would be different in different regions, you know, with different climates, different crops, different economies around the world. But those general principles really translated. And it translates into building the biologically driven fertility of the soil which then works in the farmer's favor to help them reduce their expenses for the chemical inputs that modern farming uh, you know, so greatly depends on at present. So basically, as you say in the book, park the plow, keep the soil covered with plants, grow a diversity of crops. The name of the book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. The author, David Montgomery. David, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Hey, well, no worries, Fred. It's a pleasure to talk to you. From California, California to, the world. to the world, if it's on your mind, it's on Talk 650. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Ah, nice to hear the strains of Rose Time by Merle Travis there. Uh, 
you know, the, the weather this summer has not been conducive for good roses. Your roses might be looking a little peaked right now. Uh, you're waiting for a bloom, and I, I bet the next big bloom will be probably in late September. This would be a good time, though, for deadheading them and to instigate a new series of blooms on your roses. Generally speaking, after you deadhead roses, it's about another six or seven weeks when you get another full bloom on most of your hybrid tea varieties. So if you're looking to maybe coordinate cooler weather with a good show of flowers, deadheading roses uh, this weekend might be a good idea, and that should uh, time it accordingly for the end of sep- September, the beginning of October. It, the roses basically have taken the summer off like uh, so many other plants due to our heat. So, uh, But as I'm fond of saying, roses are one of the most forgiving plants we have. So whether you deadhead them or not, they will probably put a show on for you. Uh, come the cool seasons. They they love April. They love September, October. Everything in between depends on the weather. Garden Grappler coming up in a few minutes. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet. There is a clue available at FarmerFred.com. And I mentioned a whole slew of answers earlier this hour. So uh, if, you, if you're somewhat conscious, uh, you may already have some ans- answers floating around in your head. Of course, uh, the big news uh, is, is the eclipse tomorrow, the solar eclipse that uh, will be happening here in Sacramento. The maximum coverage will be at 1017 a.m. And we're a bit south of that 60 or 70 mile wide swath where it'll be 100 percent. And we're at 78 percent. And again, that'll be at 1017 a.m. That 100 percent swath uh, goes through northern Oregon, through Idaho, and all the way to South Carolina. And I, I know a lot of people that have headed north to witness it, and I, I can't say I, I blame them. I, I think it's a good idea. And uh, we even uh, got an email from Ann Fenkner, who is enjoying the show from McCall, Idaho today. Um, I did mention over on the KFBK show that people could hurry up to Salem or Boise. Uh, Boise is just south of the path of totality, so... As Ann points out, folks need to travel a bit more north. And <laughs> she's reserved a parking space at Smith's Ferry. I've been hearing a lot about uh, the anticipated traffic jams uh, in that swath, that 60 to 70 mile wide swath, where there will be 100% eclipse totality. And uh, she says the natives there in Idaho are pretty, uh, they're freaking out about the anticipated traffic. They're not used to slowdowns, not to mention a traffic jam. And uh, they're talking about uh, the, the backlog along Highway 95 and 55 in that portion of Idaho is pretty much the talk of the town. So there you go. Uh, I bet it doesn't materialize, much like traffic during the Olympics in Los Angeles never materialized back in 1984. Um, but anyway, if you want to enjoy it here... Don't stare at the sun, as I mentioned earlier over on uh, the KFBK Garden Show. And uh, there are other ways to do it. I mentioned the the fact that you can take a cardboard box, cover one end with aluminum foil, then poke a small pinhole through it. And then on the opposite side of that pinhole, if, if the sun were coming in through that pinhole, on the opposite side of that box, put up a sheet of white paper and, and then you could put the box over your head and stand there with a box over your head facing away from the sun 
positioning the box so that the sun is lined up with that pinhole and then watch the reflection on that opposite wall in the cardboard box. No, that wouldn't look silly at all. <laughs> and you'd have sore arms to boot. Uh Barbara from Davis uh, writes in and says one of her favorite things to do during an eclipse is to look at the crescent-shaped images under trees. The normally round pinhole effects that we usually don't notice become more crescent pinhole images of the eclipse. No colander required. And that was the other option I had mentioned was you could take a kitchen colander and put it over your shoulder facing away from the sun and the sun would go through those holes and reflect it onto a light-colored surface like a sidewalk or a garage door, wherever you may happen to be facing away from the sun, and you'd get the same effect. Uh, and she even took a picture back in, during the last eclipse during 2012 and uh, sent it along of crescent-shaped light coming through a, a thickly-leafed tree, and that's, uh, that's kind of nifty. So there would be a lot of little crescent shapes you would see of the uh, eclipse as opposed to a colander, which you'd have a lot of round images wherever you happen to shoot it to. So that's something to think about. There's ways, uh, a lot of places I understand are sold out of the special glasses to look at the eclipse. Do not look at the eclipse with your bare eyes. Do not use them with sunglasses. Sunglasses do not protect your eyes when you stare at the sun. Now, I understand welder's glasses, if they're rated 14 or higher, can protect your eyes. Uh, your best bet may be just to enjoy the darkness around you. It won't be totally dark, obviously, at 78% coverage. Uh, it'll be more like dusk. Should be interesting, at the very least. And I still wonder if that dusk will trigger a reaction among some of our flying friends like bats or owls Let's see if they come out for a brief period of time. Now, obviously, this isn't a long event. The Here in Sacramento, the solar eclipse tomorrow is going to be from 9.02 in the morning to 11.39 in the morning. So that's basically two and a half hours. And maximum coverage, again, at 10.17 a.m. at 78%. 100% is up on that swath uh, that goes through northern Oregon, Idaho, and across the country into South Carolina. But still, there will be pictures on Instagram. Don't worry. There will be YouTube videos. Don't worry. All right. The other talk of the town is the stinky flower, the corpse flower, named Corona at Roseville High School. It has attracted a lot of attention. If you go to the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, uh, there are several notes there from Roseville High School science teacher C.J. Addington, eagerly anticipating the opening of this six-foot flower that smells like dead bodies. And the reason it smells like dead bodies is because that's to attract flies and other critters that are attracted to the smell of dead bodies in order to help it pollinate itself. This flower, last I heard, was six foot one and is, according to CJ, is the largest Titan Arum in Placer County history. Now, he has grown that in the greenhouse at Roseville High for a number of years and I think a decade, he said. And the last one they had, uh, they did have a previous one back in 2011, and that one attracted a lot of attention and a lot of visitors, and uh, that was only three feet tall. So this one, when it opens, is only about 
six feet tall. I mean, that, that's that's quite a difference. Two feet or three feet higher, twice the size of the other Titan Arum, the uh, corpse flower. So uh, Roseville High, by the way, is uh, on Tiger Way. One Tiger Way in Roseville is the address, and that's right off Atlantic Boulevard near the Atlantic Eureka exit off I-80 across from the Roseville Auto Mall. So uh, when you hear that the flower is fully opened, uh, you can head out there and and <laughs> smell it. Which uh, And uh, judging by the number of hits and shares that that post has had from the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, there will be about 6,000 people going out there to see that, and probably a lot more, too. But in the meantime, the waiting game is still on, and uh, we'll get an update from Roseville High coming up in a few minutes. And don't forget the Garden Grappler coming up in a few minutes. We'll also be delving into the email that you've been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com. Don't forget the show is available as a podcast. Dare I say that most of the problems have been solved? Most have. Most of the problems have been solved. Now, there's a, a few little hitches in the Giddy app. For some reason, Armstrong and Getty started showing up in, in some of the feeds of uh, the KSTE Farm Hour. I, I don't know why. Nobody knows why. But as far as I know, Get Growing and the KFBK Farm Show are available. For they, they got them all caught up, and they're right, and you can enjoy them. So if you miss any portion of today's program of Get Growing, you can find it through your iHeartRadio app or a third-party podcast aggregator. We'll take a break for news, and then it's Garden Grappler time on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Welcome back to the program. Hey, it's Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred prize closet. If you're up on your cool season flowers, all you have to do is name a cool season flower that you could plant from seed or by transplant during the month of September, which starts in 11 days, 12 days. Uh, yeah, so be thinking about your cool season garden right now. We used to talk about vegetables on this program. Let's talk about flowers for a change. I mentioned several varieties of flowers that bloom in the fall, winter, and spring that you could plant now. And there are some even summer blooming flowers that need to get planted via seed now in order to put on a show next summer. And I gave you a link, uh, told you about a, a link that the Sacramento County Master Gardeners had called uh, the Sacramento Flower Seed Planting Schedule. And uh, there is a clue available at FarmerFred.com. Just click on the link that says a clue for the garden grappler in case you're scratching your head right now trying to think of a cool season flower that you could plant from seed or by transplant during September. Maybe you're walking around a nursery right now. Go see what they have in stock. Ask them what came in recently. They would probably be cool season flowers. All five callers get a prize, special bonus prize for caller five, because as you know, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. Brooks, you ready to handle the throngs that will call in? Farmer Fred, I was born ready. He's born ready. All right. The numbers to call in, 576-1578 in the 916 area code. 866-331-8255 is the toll-free number. 576-1578 in the 916 or toll-free 866 866- Three three one eight two five five. Name a cool season flower you could plant from seed or by transplant. In other words, a plant you bought at a nursery during September. You know how the game's played. 
have a backup answer because if somebody takes uh, the answer you were thinking of, well, it's gone. So have a couple of answers in mind. That's especially uh, difficult for Caller 5 because, as you know, in the Garden Grappler, uh, Caller 5 gets a special bonus prize, so that's why uh, we do it that way. So name a cool season flower you could plant from seed or by transplant during September. It's creepy, it's kooky, it's a corpse flower. It's the highlight of Placer County this weekend. It's at Roseville High. It is a corpse flower, the Titan Arum that may be putting on its magical show today of stinking up the high school greenhouse and attracting hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Let's find out how it's doing. Darcy Durham is a biology teacher out there at Roseville High School. And Darcy, uh, how's Corona doing? Uh, We're waiting for her to unfurl her grandeur, but it's not happening quite yet. Wow. (laughs) Originally, it was scheduled to happen on Thursday, and so this is is a, a long labor. Right. We are patiently waiting. Um, C.J. Addington, who has been growing uh, the corpse flowers, kind of anticipated that possibly uh, it would be this weekend. And then we saw some signs that indicated maybe it would be earlier. But now we're back to the waiting game. Oh, my. Now, I've heard from some people who have uh, come by the Roseville High School greenhouse in the last couple of days. and, And there is a bit of an aroma already, isn't there? Yes, if you put your uh, nose right up to kind of the ruffled edge uh, and take a good whiff, you can definitely smell uh, the odor. But as soon as that starts to pull away a little more, it will be rampant throughout the campus. Explain the corpse flower and, and why it smells so bad, and it has a purpose. Right. So it emits this gas in uh, into the air to attract carrion beetles and flies. And so it smells like rotting flesh. So it tricks them into coming into the flower. And hopefully that those insects are already carrying some pollen from the male flowers, other plants. And so that helps the pollination process to carry on the species. And this is no small flower. Now, back in 2011, you had a corpse flower out there at Roseville High that was about three feet tall. And this one is uh, over six feet tall already, isn't it? Correct. And so from the level of the soil in the pot to the very tip, uh, last time it was measured, it was at six foot two. If people want more information about the corpse flower and and wanted to be there for the peak stink period, if you will, uh, there's a couple of ways you can follow it. I'll be posting updates at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. And uh, you have a, a, a live YouTube feed so that people can watch it unfurl uh, in, in real time. Yes. So if they were to search uh, Titan Aram Corona, at Roseville High School. Um, There are several feeds. Um, We're doing it through the YouTube channel, um, and it cuts us off every eight hours. So there are multiple videos there, but just find the most current one. They're listed by the date. And uh, for example, uh, today is August 20th AM is the one that we're currently running. Darcy Durham, biology teacher at Roseville High School. Thank you for the corpse flower update. You're welcome. Thanks. And we'll keep everybody posted uh, 
like I say, through the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page as the stink develops. And it always attracts a crowd. A lot of people go, what, what's the big deal? Well, it's, uh, it's an unusual flower. It doesn't happen very often. Most of them are in captivity of conservatories and arboretums. For a high school to have one is highly unusual. And it's just great. It just shows you what the what an active science program they have out there at Roseville High School. And Roseville High School, again, is at One Tiger Way in Roseville. Uh, Tiger Way is off Atlantic. And so that would be near the Atlantic Eureka exit off uh, Interstate 80, not too far from the Roseville Auto Mall. So uh, the corpse flower getting set to stink to high, high heaven uh, locally. All right. Did I tell you we're in the midst of the Garden Grappler? We are. People are calling, naming a cool season flower that you could plant from seed or by transplant during September. All five callers get a prize. Special bonus prize for caller five. The numbers to call in, 576-1578. That's in the 916 area code, 576-1578. Or toll free, 866-331-8255. 866-331-8255. And let's see what we got so far here for cool season flowers you could grow. Mike in Sacramento, welcome to the Garden Grappler. Hey, great show. I appreciate it. Sure. What's up? Uh, The answer to the question? Yeah, that would be good. (laughs) How about uh, Larkspur? Yeah, Larkspur is on that list uh, put out by the Sacramento uh, uh, Master Gardeners of a flower seed planting schedule. And there's actually a, a lot of good times to direct seed a larkspur in the garden. And again, this is something that would tend to bloom usually in uh, the summertime, but it's best planted in the fall. And larkspurs can be planted into the soil anytime from September all the way through the following March. So that's a good answer there with larkspur. And for knowing that, Mike, I have for you from uh, the folks at uh, UCIPM, the University of California Integrated Pest Management uh, Program, I have uh, their publications on Spotting the Asian Citrus Psyllid, as well as Citrus Greening Disease. And also, I'll send you a copy of the Sacramento Flower Seed Planting Schedule as well. So, Mike, thank you for participating in our little game here. Well, thank you for having your show. All right. Thanks for calling. All right. Caller number two in today's Garden Grappler. Up we go to Palermo and Toby. So, Toby, go ahead. Make our day. Name a cool season flower you could plant in September. One of my favorites and it's a really useful herb, is calendula. Yeah, calendula, very popular. I love the daisy-like flower because it attracts a whole host of beneficials during the wintertime, including bees. It's one of the plants you might keep around in the wintertime just to keep bees around that and uh, maybe a rosemary shrub, which isn't an annual, so that that wouldn't really qualify for this, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, no, it's not. So, uh, but yeah. Why not calendulas? And there's so many calendulas to choose from, and, and it sounds like you're making uh, tea out of them. Well, actually, uh, the the biggest use for calendula is skin and hair care. Um, and even if you look at your commercial shampoos and stuff and cream rinses, you'll notice a lot of them do have calendula in them now. And it makes really, 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 really good bubble bath and hand cream and all that stuff. Really? Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll have to look up calendula bubble bath. All right, Toby, good job. I'll be sending you that Sacramento flower seed planting schedule along with information on spotting the Asian citrus psyllid and citrus greening disease. 
Okay, Fred. And Fred, you can never retire. We're not going to let you retire. We love your show too much. The only thing I retire is the rubber on my cars. And, and, and that's about it because I've no, if I'm enjoying what I'm doing, why retire? Exactly. Yeah. And, no, and, and besides, we won't let you. We'll <laughs> go find you and, and drag you back to the studio. We well, love your show. Well, then you better have a key that opens the front door because that's how they're going to keep me out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, Toby. Have, it, have fun uh, during the eclipse. I, oh, I'll be safe. Don't worry. Okay. Thanks, Toby. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. All right. So we're going to look for callers three, four, and five for the Garden Grappler. Name a cool season flower you could plant from seed or by transplant during September. A clue available at FarmerFred.com. Just click on the link that says a clue for the Garden Grappler. 576-1578 in the 916 or 866-331-8255. It's the Garden Grappler and it's going on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. We are in the midst of the Garden Grappler lining up five winners, five people who say they can name a cool season flower that you could plant from seed or by transplant during the month of September. What's a cool season flower? It's one that usually puts on a show in uh, the fall, the winter, and even into the spring, but now is the time to be planting them in order to get that show later on. So if you're... Uh, you got a blank space in your garden or you're uh, ripping out summertime vegetables and maybe you're not big on wintertime vegetables, then maybe you want to put in a cool season flower garden. Why not? Uh, a lot of good ones to choose from. Clue available at FarmerFred.com. And there's one open line in the Garden Grappler at 576-1578 in the 916. And one open line on uh, the toll-free line, 866 866- Three three one eight two five five. We're up to caller number three in the Garden Grappler. Previous answers included Larkspur and Calendula, and Larkspur is one of those that will actually bloom a little bit later in the spring and into the summer. But now is the time to be planting it. Uh, Calendula, a good cool season, dependable for our area. And Burdell in Gold River, go ahead and give us another uh, cool season annual or flower. How about how about the California poppy? California poppy, yes, indeed. Don't tell my wife, but what I'm planning on doing in this bare front yard that we have, because it'll take a while when we plant in September uh, any sort of uh, little flowers we put in or or small shrubs or perennials, it's going to take a while for it to fill in. So I thought what I'd do is go out and get maybe a pound or so of California poppy seeds and just scatter it throughout the front there and let the winter rains germinate them and get them growing so there'll be a very nice show of california poppies uh come oh i don't know february march april so and that'll give give the neighborhood a show until uh, the the flowers and other things take over but uh good well yeah but the problem is when the california poppy is done it, it sort of sits there and doesn't look too good so what i have to do is make sure i get in there and sort of weed whack them down to ground level uh in in the mulch so that uh, they reseed and uh, it doesn't become a uh, spousal issue. 
so to speak. Okay. But yeah, California Poppy, good answer there, Burdell. So I'll be sending you the uh, UCIPM publication on spotting the Asian citrus psyllid, as well as citrus greening disease, and also the Sacramento flower seed planting schedule. So thanks for playing our little game. Well, thank you very much. All right. Good job. All right. So there you go. Uh, So three good answers so far, Larkspur, Calendula, and California Poppy. Denka in Brentwood, how you doing? I'm doing great. Good. So why don't you go ahead and give us a cool season flower? Well, how about I love to plant in September the mums, especially the Belgian mums, because they keep that around shade, and they usually bloom to the winter, and then I cut them back early spring, and they rebloom again. So you you you're not planting these from seed; you're going to the nursery and buying uh, buying the, the four-inch plant, right? And they stay in bloom through the fall and maybe into the winter. Oh, yes, that is just beautiful. I like like that answer. That's a good idea. By the way, for those of you at home growing mums, this would be the time to uh, maybe take them back in size a little bit so that they get a good show for the fall. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that sounds like a good idea. I hadn't thought about chrysanthemums, but definitely that is a cool season show in and of itself. So good answer, Duncan. I'll be sending you the uh, Sacramento flower seed planting schedule, which will work in Brentwood, as well as the uh, Asian citrusillid and citrus greening disease information from the folks at the University of California. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Duncan, for calling. Appreciate you listening to the program. Okay, every Sunday. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah, so now we come to the fifth caller. And the fifth caller is going to get a special bonus prize because, as you know, you cannot repeat an earlier answer in the Garden Grappler. The answers we've had so far, Larkspur, Calendula, California Poppy, and Mums. And so, Roberta in Garden Valley, it's up to you. Come up with another cool season flower that you could plant in September. How about sweet peas? I love them. I love sweet peas, too, and they're an excellent choice. They they tend not to put on their best show until usually early spring, but that's okay because they're adding nitrogen to the soil in the meantime, and it just seems kind of cruel to uh, chop them off before they um, uh, start blooming uh, in order to improve the nitrogen content of the soil, but you certainly could do that. But, no, they're, they're there for you to enjoy their sprawling nature and all the flowers they produce. Well, do you know how I grow them? I live on an upstairs balcony area. So I have a big pot, and they cascade down the balcony. Oh, that's nice. That That's yeah. quite a show. And because they are such a twining, vining plant, uh, that's the best way to control them. <laughs> Give them nothing to hang on to. <laughs> <laughs> do they reach the ground? No, not quite. Okay, but- so... I, I have my little patio and picnic table down below, and the aroma sitting down there on that table is just tremendous. Oh, that's a great idea. I like that. All right. Well, I have for you, and I think this will work in your area. Uh, I don't think the Placer County Master Gardener Gardening Guide and Calendar is out yet, but I'll send you the 2018 Sacramento County Gardening Guide and Calendar because you're going to get a lot of good information out of that one. Oh, I always Lots of information listening to your shows. Well, thank you. And this uh, gardening guide will also help you out a lot as well. So, Roberta, thanks for playing our little game. I appreciate it. All righty. Bye-bye. All right. So there there you go. A lot of good uh, plants that you could be sticking in the ground as far as flowers, uh, 
during the month of September from seed. Uh, you could be putting in, uh, as uh, earlier mentioned, California poppy, also cornflowers, foxglove, hollyhock. Larkspur was mentioned earlier, uh, other poppy varieties. And among the transplants that you could find at a nursery right now to be putting in the ground, that would be uh, putting on their show mainly in the cool seasons, uh, viola, stock, snapdragons, some of the salvia varieties, uh, even coleus, if you want to try that outdoors, and also aster, baby breath, and calendula, which was one of the answers as well. So good going, folks. All right, we've got our cool season flowers in there. And you can find this chart, the Sacramento Flower Seed Planting Schedule. It is online, and if you enter the phrase Sacramento Flower Seed Planting Schedule, uh, it'll take you right to it. But, you know, frankly, if you just went to FarmerFred.com and clicked on the link that says a clue for the garden grappler, you'd get that same page. Okay? Yeah. So that'll work as well. Uh, yeah, we haven't taken a look at the the week's weather ahead. Is this going to be a is it more summer weather or what? Well, actually, good news. It no triple digits are in the forecast for the coming week. Of course, uh, the the uh, standard forecast applies fair through October. Highs in the 90s, lows in the 60s. That's good news. 92, the expected high today for Sacramento. 90 on Monday, 90 on Tuesday, 93 on Wednesday, 91 on uh, Friday, on Thursday rather. On Friday, 92, 93 next Saturday. Overnight lows in the low 60s. Very nice. So there is some cooling going on, and uh, maybe we can start getting some full-size tomatoes. One thing I've noticed with that record amount of heat that we've had is the fact that the peppers have done quite well. Now, some of those that are facing directly towards the sun, if they're the south side of the pepper or the uh, west side, you may see some brown marks, sunburn. But still, the rest of the pepper is very edible, but uh, it is a very good crop of peppers this year, I must admit. And I'm growing my tomatoes and peppers all in containers this year because of all the landscaping we're doing in the yard so i knew that plants would have to get moved around so everything's growing in containers and uh so far so good all right when we come back we're going to pay a visit to the uc davis arboretum and talk with warren roberts the superintendent emeritus when we come back to get growing on talk 650 kste You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Every month we like to talk with Warren Roberts out at the UC Davis Arboretum. If you were listening earlier to the KFPK Garden Show, we were talking about some of the plants that look good this time of year in late August and in late summer. And But Warren's got plenty more plants to talk about. That's why we bring them back over here on Get Growing. And, of course, uh, we should mention, Warren, that uh, you're going to resume your walks with Warren, your noontime strolls that you do every month on uh, usually the second or third Wednesday of the month. And you're going to be uh, starting that up again in September, right? Yes, second Wednesday. Uh, and that'll this, uh, as usual, will be, will be out at, starting out at the Arboretum Gazebo, which is south of the vet school, south of the Arboretum Teaching Nursery. There's a lot. There's a lot of variety out there, and so all 
almost all all year there's something to look at. September 13th at noon, the walk with Warren. And while you're taking that stroll with Warren, maybe make notes of plants that pique your interest, then come back on October 7th, that's a Saturday, because that's the day of the UC Davis Arboretum Plant Sale. And as we are fond of saying, fall is for planting. And Warren, I would imagine that a lot of the plants for sale in the fall sale have some a little bit of girth to them. They've been growing all spring and summer. Yes, I was out in the nursery uh, recently, and wow, it's <laughs> splendid. Uh, really, there's going to be a lot of a lot of wonder- there are going to be a lot of wonderful things to choose from. All right. Well, let's pick up the plants that are looking good right now at the UC Davis Arboretum. When we last left you, uh, we were talking about the prickly pear. So let's move on from there. Well, um, the paroskia or the Russian sage or um, Persian sage is, forms a cloud of uh, pale lavender flowers. And it's um, a very tough, a very easy plant to grow in full sun. And it provides this beautiful cloud of uh, flowers. Um, through much of the summer and on into the fall. And uh, it's very cold-hardy, too. I've, I've seen it growing in Santa Fe, uh, New Mexico, very happily. Um, a plant that is not cold-hardy but very beautiful and kind of new in the trade is Pavonia missionorum, which comes from South America. It comes from the <clears throat> area of Paraguay, Uruguay, Argentina, southern Brazil, and uh, it, it looks like a miniature hibiscus, and the flower is a beautiful scarlet orange, oh. and each flower is a hibiscus uh, about a, an inch and a half across on a small, a bright green leaf plant. Well, now, Another, uh, go ahead and uh, spell that botanical name for us again. Right. Uh, Pavonia, P-A-V as in Vacaville, O-N-I-A, Missionorum, just the word mission and then O-R-U-M which commemorates the uh, magnificent uh, missions that were, were built in that area by the uh, Catholic Church in, in those years. But anyway, Pavonia Missionorum. And is there a common name? Is there a common is, name? Oh, the common name, Pavonia, I think. There are other Pavonias, but the, this is the one that uh, would be, I think, the, the most available. It's kind of hard sometimes to get a common name for an uncommon plant. <laughs> yes. Um, Verbena rigida, uh, which is uh, a weedy plant, but oh, what a beautiful weed, with brilliant purple flowers uh, in summer, like many of the verbenas or glandularias, as many of them are now called. It's uh, rather upright, and it also has a uh, lilac-colored uh, form as well. Erythrina hybrid bidwili is a, this, a shrub that dies back in the winter. It's something to put not too close to a path because the leaves have little cat hooks on them. And But the flowers are, are magnificent, brilliant red. It's, I was trying to figure which is the most spectacular plant in bloom right now. And well, that would almost win, I think. Um, you can't miss it, <laughs> but don't get too close. It, it's really a splendid plant. Is this anything like the cockspur coral tree? Yeah, actually, the cockspur coral tree is one of its parents, but it has pure red flowers, whereas the cockspur coral tree has kind of slightly brownish red, spectacular nonetheless. I get. I, I think that the place of uh, the most spectacular plants right now would be the amaryllis, 
uh, the true amaryllis, Amaryllis belladonna, which is a pale pink flower. It blooms before the leaves come up on two-foot stems, fragrant, beautiful. And they, many of what we think of as uh, the true amaryllis are actually a hybrid. The uh, late Mr. Hannibal of Fair Oaks uh, was the famous breeder of that. In fact, I think his garden there uh, where the uh, road comes up from the river to to Fair Oaks, I think that many of them are still there. If you look to the left on that slope, you probably see them. <clears throat> and those come in colors all the way from pure white to almost red with everything in between. So if you have an amaryllis blooming this time of year that's not pale pink, it's probably one of the um, Amaristites multiflora of Mr. Hannibal. Uh, Aster fricarti, which is a hybrid, they call them our munch, M-O-N-C-H, with the two little dots over the O, um, looking very good right now. And another aster, purple dome, is just coming into bloom. The Hesperalloes, uh, uh, the Hesperalloe parviflora, the uh, coral yucca, is still beautiful and, and spectacular. This is one of the easiest uh, plants to grow, I, I think, but really needs full sun. Delasperma cooperi is an ice plant which continues to bloom almost all year with its magenta flowers on a carpet of uh, bright green leaves. Another plant that grows, that blooms without its leaves is Lycoris radiata, the spider lily f uh, from Eastern Asia. And, oh, it's just beautiful right now. <laughs> I love that plant. Hunomania fumarifolia, the um, Mexican poppy, looks much like California poppy, but pure yellow. And it's a, a good plant for filtered shade in our area. Mm. And it also blooms almost all year. Uh, speaking of poppies, California poppy, if you didn't pull them out they have, and just clip them back, they're back and blooming right now. Probably with forward. smaller flowers, though. Wouldn't they be flower, yes, a little smaller? Lower plants, smaller flowers, paler color, but still very nice. Uh, hibiscus mosheutus, mm. which is the <clears throat> giant uh, herbaceous um, hibiscus of the southeast, comes on in colors white to uh, dark red, including pink. And the flowers are about six inches across. <laughs> you certainly can't miss them. They're easy to grow, but they do like some water. Uh, Hibiscus syriacus, the Rose of Sharon, also in bloom. That's a small tree, a large shrub, <clears throat> deciduous plant. Tacoma stands is golden bell, and it's a little tender, but usually survives in our climate. Don't forget zinnias. We have a little patch of zinnias in the Arboretum right now. And the trumpet vine. Oh, my goodness. Campsus radicans and its hybrids. Gosh, but stand back. This is a this is a vine of not for the faint-hearted. Almost as vigorous as as uh, wisteria. I, I have seen them in redwood trees. Yes, I've seen them on the abandoned telephone poles too. <laughs> that would be a really good way to grow them. Is put up a very sturdy pole about twenty feet tall, and then just plant. Uh, Campus radicans, and in a couple of years, it will be a small, well, it will be a tree, uh, deciduous, but what a, what a display. The hybrid of Madame Galen is even more spectacular, the flowers being two or three times larger than the American species. Mm. But the American species is one of the parents of it. Well, Warren, so a, Warren yeah. I'm out of room on my yellow legal pad. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I'm about out of room. There are, uh, for the most spectacular blooming things, 
a lot more in bloom. But uh, the, I, I think the garden, if you have to choose uh, the, the store garden out in the west end of the Arboretum, is the, the most colorful place right now. So if you're looking for something to do this afternoon, maybe head over to the store garden at the UC Davis Arboretum. If you need directions or more information about the Arboretum, check them out online, arboretum.ucdavis.edu. You'll find more information about the walks with Warren there, as well as the upcoming plant sale on October 7th. And a lot of other great information about uh, plants that may do very well in your yard, including their Arboretum All-Stars. Warren Roberts, Superintendent Emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum. Again, thank you so much for sharing your horticultural knowledge with us here on the radio. Well, I'm delighted to do so. And everybody, welcome to the Arboretum. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Today we're looking at rhododendrons. Hi everybody, it's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman at the Cruz Rhododendron State Reserve in Salt Point State Park. We're in Sonoma County. I can hear the ocean in the distance right off Highway 1 near mile marker 43. Salt Point State Park is a magnificent facility. And tucked away is this rhododendron reserve, which during April and May is just a wash in color. It's just gorgeous here. Joining us is the ranger for the area, Ashford Wood. And Ashford, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, rhododendrons and what are they doing here? This is about the southern extent of the naturally occurring rhododendrons in California. There are a few further south, but not many. And this rhododendron preserve actually was uh, as a result of a major fire that occurred here around the turn of the century. And the rhodes were always here, but because the fire destroyed the canopy, the large fir and redwood trees and oak and pine, the rhododendrons grew and thrived. And so in the 30s, when this became a state reserve, the uh, rhododendrons were well established. Now we should point out that trees have grown since that fire. That uh, What are the trees we're surrounded with here? Uh, pretty much what you're looking at here are a mix of redwoods, some firs, a few large pine trees, and a few smaller oak trees. Those are the predominant trees in the area. And the rhododendrons, who love dappled shade, are probably uh, enjoying this to the hilt. Absolutely, except that now they're becoming somewhat shaded to the uh, extent that we may have to do some management of the uh, overstory to remove them so that they can actually reach their full potential. How many rhododendrons are here and uh, what are some of the species? These are just one species of rhododendrons in this area. And as far as the numbers of them, I couldn't count the number of plants in the thousands. Describe the, the shrub for us. How tall is it? This, How wide is shrub, it? When does it bloom? Yeah. What are the colors? This shrub has actually three variations of coloration, and the shrubs grow anywhere from uh, a few feet tall to an excess of 25 feet. And they're a native uh, to this part of uh, western United States. Their color variations go from deep pink to light pink to almost pure white, depending on the soil types, the shade, and uh, the uh, nutrients that they get. I'm sure that uh, the bloom season depends on the weather, and uh, but generally speaking, uh, when is prime bloom season here? It'll vary as much as a month, depending on if we get a warm March, you might get rhododendron blooming in about the 10th to 12th of April, or if you get a very heavy, wet, 
cool March. You may not get any blooms until the 1st of May. It varies as much as a month. And again, you may have blooms clear through the end of uh, uh, June into the first part of July if you have a late uh, spring. Or if you have an early spring, you'll see your last blooms about mid uh, um, May. Usually the best time, though, is right around Mother's Day. I imagine because rhododendrons love acid soil that the soil here on the pH is rather acidic and there's a bit of rain involved too. Uh, how much rain and what's the soil like? Yeah, the soil is very acidic absolutely with all of the uh, leaf detritus on the ground from the trees. The uh, rainfall varies from a very dry of about 35 inches to a very wet of over 80 inches a year. Now, when you talk to us in Sacramento about a dry 35 inches, we, we think that's a gully washer. The, uh, the, the rotos are fabulous, and the trees, this forest, is fabulous. Tell us a little bit about Salt Point State Park. Uh, what's, what is in Salt Point State Park? Why is this a state park? Salt Point State Park is kind of a diamond in the rough. It's one of the pretty much undeveloped areas of the California state parks that preserves a beautiful uh, second-growth redwood forest that was cut over from about 1852 on, and it has about six and a half miles of beautiful shoreline, very similar to that found around Point Lobos. In fact, one of our former directors described Salt Point as a Point Lobos north. And we're located uh, just a few miles north of Jenner, I think about mile, between mile markers, what, 40 and 43 on Highway 1? Yeah, mile marker 39 is our southern boundary. Our northern boundary is 4455. And people are going to ask, why is it called Salt Point? That's a very good question. The reason is because the Native Americans, the Pomo Indians, Kashaya tribe, would gather salt here every late spring as a result of the major storm waves bringing the salt water up onto the rocks and they would lay in depressions and then by springtime the water would evaporate leave the salt. And in those days they didn't have a refrigerator. So salt was a very, very wonderful trading commodity because they could preserve their meat and their fish and they could trade with the Indian uh, cultures from inland that didn't have salt to get their uh, material for their obsidian arrowhead and like that. Now in this area of the Cruz Rhododendron State Reserve, uh, why is it called Cruz? Edward de Cruz purchased the property that we're standing on now in about 1870 from a fellow by the name of Helmkey and he developed the area uh, logged it, and in the early 30s, when he was uh, getting along in years, he donated this to the state of California in memory of his mother. And at the time, it was 317 acres of what he considered very poor timber. It wasn't worth anything, and he got a bit of a tax write-off because taxes just came into effect around 1930. And if he would see it now in the, in the uh, nice timber it has, the uh, local people that knew him would say he would roll over in his grave and come back and log it. <laughs> Why is it called a state reserve for rhododendrons and not a state preserve? Right. A state reserve allows us to go in and manage it so that the rhododendrons can continue to thrive. A preserve means we really can't go in there. The public can't have many trails in here. And a reserve allows us a little more relaxed rules regarding the use and the management of the facility. Now, one of those relaxed rules does not include people coming in and taking samples home with them, uh, taking cuttings and trying to grow them at home. Uh, a, it's against the law. B, there is a disease out there, sudden oak death, the Phytophthora remorum, that may be here, and it probably is here, and can be spread very easily by removing uh, parts of plants from here and to other areas of the state. That's correct. And we're finding now the possibility that even some of the redwoods could, which, you know, they're a very vigorous uh, tree, could actually be contracting the uh, sudden oak death syndrome. So 
basically enjoy the rhododendrons, but don't touch. Exactly. Look, come and enjoy, bring your camera, bring your family, enjoy it in the springtime, but don't take any with you. And it might help to uh, clean your shoes off too before you get back in the car. Absolutely wonderful idea. Just wipe them down with uh, a uh, wipe with some Clorox or something like that. All right. Well, Ashford Wood, thanks for spending a few minutes with us here at the Cruise Rhododendron State Reserve. we got to come back here during April and May and see this place when it's in full bloom here at Salt Point State Park on Highway 1 in Sonoma County, County uh, just a few miles north of Jenner. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Let's take a look at upcoming garden events uh, later this afternoon, Sunday, August 20th, 2 to 4 p.m., the Yolo County Master Gardeners have a Q&A, question and answer forum. You get your garden questions answered. And they'll have two little mini sessions on specified topics, including the joy of growing irises at 2.15, as well as planting your fall and winter vegetable garden at 3.15. And this free event at the Mary Stevens Library at 3.15 East 14th Street in Davis. And again, it is free. Then next Saturday, the Yellow County Master Gardeners have a class on growing fall and winter vegetables. That'll be from 10 to 11.30 a.m. at Farm 2.6, <laughs> located at 25450 County Road 95 in rural West Davis. Farm 2.6. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. Napa County residents, you want to be a Master Gardener in Napa County? Well, you can attend a... Application informational event, and that'll be Monday evening, 7 to 8.30 p.m. at the Cooperative Extension Meeting Room at 1710 Soskal Avenue in Napa. If you enjoy gardening and you're a resident of Napa County and you want to teach others to be better gardeners, then uh, the UC Master Gardener Program of Napa County is for you. By the way, there are other counties uh, putting together their future Master Gardener programs for future classes. The Sacramento County Master Gardeners will be releasing information about their 2018 schedule uh, next month. So we'll have that information for you when it becomes available. The Buzz About Bees down in San Joaquin County, they'll be talking about that in Stockton at 2101 East Earhart Avenue on Tuesday from 1030 to noon. And you can find out more about planting pollinator and bee-friendly plants. Over at the Old City Cemetery at 1000 Broadway, that's 10th and Broadway, next Saturday at 10 a.m., the Old City Cemetery Committee has a free tour of the cemetery's Hamilton Square Garden. It has over 800 unusual Mediterranean perennial plants, drought-tolerant color all year long. And again, this will be free next Saturday 10 a.m. at the Old City Cemetery there at 10th and Broadway. Uh, what else is going on? Hey, the KSTE Farm Hour is going on. That's coming up right after the news right here on Talk 650 KSTE. On today's uh, episode, we talk about Tehama County farmer John Duarte's battle against the Army Corps of Engineers and the Waters of the United States regulations. And his case has ended. And we'll tell you what happened. Commodity prices are tumbling after the latest USDA crop forecast. We'll also talk about uh, the benefits of cover cropping. That's coming up next on the KSTE Farm Hour. Hey, we'll do this show again next Sunday, 10 to noon, right here on Talk 650 KSTE. KSTE.